Amen. And as you're seated, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 9. Or if you grab the bulletin when you came in, we got the whole chapter starting from verse 6 all the way to 38 printed out. So it'll be helpful to track along because it's a big chapter and we're just going to move through it. And uh, as we begin, I'm going to start out uh, with a joke. And I want you to tell me, so this is going to be a contest, and you rate it on a scale of 1 to 10. 10 being the funniest joke you've ever heard, 1 being not the funniest joke you've ever heard. So you give me a rating. All right. So we have two, uh, in honor of Nathan, we have two, uh, two guys from Alabama were out hunting. And uh, one of them fell over. And his buddy thought he was dead and panicked and pulled out his cell phone. And he called 911. And uh, he said, you know, I, my friend, my friend is dead. What do I do? And, you know, the, the, First responders, the operators are trained to be, you know, so calm and and to enter into emergencies with with peace and be calm and cool and collected. And so very calmly, the operator said, well, sir, just just breathe. The first thing you want to do is let's make sure that he's dead. And then there was silence. And then she heard a loud gunshot over the phone. And he said, all right, got it. I made sure he's dead. What do I do now? Okay, so scale one to ten, where do you what, what would you what would you give that? A uh, ten. Tim gives it a ten. We got multiple tens. A three, uh, eight, four. Uh, I said that joke. Uh, several years ago, one website was looking for the funniest joke of all time, and over two million people responded and voted, and that was the winner. That joke won as the funniest joke of all time. Now, you might think, I mean, that's good, but I mean, is that the funniest joke of all time? I don't think so either. And so, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily despair of democracy, but maybe that just proves that you can't trust the people uh, to pick. You can't trust, and many things you can't trust the crowd. You know, I feel sorry for kids who've been raised in the iPhone world because your parents have so much blackmail material on you and there's going to come a time where uh, you want to bring somebody home and they're just going to have reams of blackmail material at least I grew up in the Polaroid era so when I finally brought Cynthia home to meet my family I could take all of the embarrassing things that I didn't want another human to see and put them in a bag and then hide them in a ditch but there's no digital ditch that you can hide your embarrassing photos and there'll come a time where you look back and you think, what was I thinking? Like, why was I wearing that? And your response will be, well, everybody was. But sometimes you can't trust what everybody's doing. The crowd, the collective crowd can lead you astray. And here in Nehemiah 9, we have the collective crowd gathered. But here they do something remarkable. In some sense, it's unusual when crowds gather. They actually construct together one of the most moving, profound, and powerful chapters in all of the Bible. And this week's studying, I've never had Nehemiah, you know, nine kind of land on me, but I, I think this could be elevated to a chapter very similar to like Psalm 23 or Romans 8, one of the more majestic passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. And so let's kind of come in because one of the things that this can do is this can be a chapter that's meant to renew and restore your soul when you get dry and you are weary 
and you are wounded. You know, the ancient Greeks had the saying, that the saying was, cabbage served twice is death. And so the idea is that the first time you serve cabbage and you can cook it up and you can uh, season it and it can be really good. Now, I don't know what kind of cabbage they were serving, not like any I've ever had. But cabbage the first time is good. But if you try to reheat it, if you try to reserve it, if you try to eat it, uh, serve it up the next day, then it's like death. It's just smelly and it's stinky and it doesn't taste good. It's gotten sour and stale. And you think about the ways like our souls can be like cabbage. I mean, what do you do when they get sour or they get stale or they get soggy? Now, the ancient Greeks didn't have anything like the magic of an air fryer that can take uh, the fried magical goodness and restore it to its pristine uh, beauty. So maybe Nehemiah 8, maybe the image you need is Nehemiah 9 can be like an air fryer for the soul. It can help breathe heat and life and energy back into uh, your souls when they become lifeless or listless. Uh, when the, the soul gets soggy, it can crispen it back up and heat it back up. And so we're going to move through Nehemiah chapter 9, and you can see there's eight different movements and kind of going like the air fryer, each one of these movements can be like a different setting that you can use to cook and warm, warm your heart. So let's get the setting, starting in verse 1 through 5. On the 24th day of this month, so remember the setting, in chapter 8, they finally finished completing the wall. And then they've gathered together, and about 150,000, 200,000 of them have come. And for an entire week, they come and they celebrate and they sit under the continual reading of the word. So they come in and they hear the entire law of the book of Moses and they hear it and they're celebrating. It's a time of feasting and celebration. And then they've come back on the 24th day of the month and they've gathered and it's a day of fasting. It's a day of wearing sackcloth. They've put dust on their heads. They've heard the word and it's a day of confession. Now, I wonder if what's happening, it doesn't say explicitly, but in the seventh month, the, the progression was supposed to be first seven days of the month, there's a festival of the trumpets where they're celebrating the trumpets, they're blowing the trumpets, they're calling people to Jerusalem, they're celebrating that the harvest has come in and they, it's a, a celebration of God's good gifts to them. And then in the middle of the month, on the uh, 15th day, you had the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This was the only day of the year that was a day designated to fasting, a dedicated to mourning, where you would put on sackcloth, you put ashes, dust you came from, dust you will return. That was the day where the, uh, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies on that one holy, unique day. And then that would end and it would culminate the next week where you had the seven days of the festival of the booze. And so it's interesting. I think they've come and they, they started celebrating the booze on the first day of the week. I think because they were reading through the law and they got to that por portion in Exodus and just said, why are we not doing it? Let's do it now. And then they kept going and got to Leviticus and Leviticus 16 and said, oh, why are we not doing this? Let's do it now. So I think this is that day. So all of them in verse 2, they come together. They've separated themselves from all the foreigners and they stood and they confess their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. So this is a day of public confession. And while they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. 
So for either three hours or six hours, the day is a full 24 hours, so it was either three or six, that they stood and they read from the book of the law, and then for another fourth of the day, so for either three or another six hours, they spent that time in confession and worship. And then what we have is this is the collective song of celebration that was written at that time. And then so in verse 4, they have the group that leads them, build the platform, they cry out loudly to their God. And then in verse 5, it says, Stand up, blessed be the Lord your God, for everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessings and praise. And then they start. So from verse 6 all the way to 38 is one continual, it's a song. It's a psalm, and they're celebrating. And so let's just walk through the pieces and see what they sing and what they celebrate. Verse 6, you, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, and the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and all of the stars of heaven, they worship you. So the first stage that's going to get their heart renewed and revived and refreshed and get the, get the fire coming back into them is they're going to sing and celebrate that God is both creator and sustainer. He's created. They've heard Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and they've internalized it. And now they're singing it back to him. And you created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their stars. And two things that are going to run through all of this. How does he create? It's by the power of his word and his spirit. They come together to create. So they sing and they celebrate. They glory in God as creator. And then you have given life. You have sustained it. And so one of the first steps to, in the time when our, our souls are soggy is to get out of our own souls and to look out and to look at the goodness of God in creation. Martin Luther will teach the kids to pray every single morning. So they pray through the creed. You know, uh, I believe in God, Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Say, Almighty Father, maker of heaven and earth, we praise you for fashioning me in love and setting me in this world you have created. Give me eyes to see and celebrate your glory. So first step, looking out in creation. Worshiping him as creator and sustainer. But then notice in verse 7 through 15, they move into worshiping him as redeemer. So in verse 7, you, the Lord, are the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and changed his name to Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Jebusites and Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. So from 7 to 15 is this unbroken song of praise and celebration for redemption, and it begins with Abraham. So now they've, been, they've moved through Genesis, and do you notice what it is about the story of Abraham that they want to foreground, and they bring out to the fore? It's Abraham, look at verse 7, it's you who chose him, and then you changed him. They celebrate God's sovereign election in choosing him. And then they celebrate God's transformative power in changing him. You changed his name. That's the thing they want to highlight. And the Bible names are not just a designation about who you are. It's an identity. 
as you've transformed his identity at the deepest level of who he is. You chose him, you changed him. And then notice what promise it wants to highlight. So you made a covenant with him. So creation, covenant, to give him this land, to give us this land, and you have fulfilled your promise. So you've been true to your word. You've given this promise, and the promise is wrapped up in your presence and then our place. These are the two things we need to live the, the, the abundant life. We need your presence, and we need to be settled in our place. And your promise is to give both of those things, and you have done it because you are righteous. And then notice in verse 9, it moves from Abraham into the Exodus. So in verse 9, you saw the oppression of our ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea. Now what's remarkable, in between 8 and 9, in that little gap, it just moves, it seems to flow so smoothly. But there's 400 years in between that gap. So sometimes we, we, we live in the gap, but the, the movement... But here you saw, and notice what it highlights. It highlights that God saw and he heard their cry. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of the land. For you knew how arrogantly they treated our ancestors. But you made a name for yourself that endures to this day. The exodus was for the glory of your name. Started, we're going to be moving into Exodus in the fall. Our next big sermon series is going to be through Exodus. I've been so intrigued at how central the concept of the name. What is the Lord's name? Who is this? And even in Hebrew, the name of the book of Exodus is not Exodus. It's actually the name. As the name of who is this Lord? It gets revealed and demonstrated and declared that this is who I am. I am who I am. And who am I? I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. So it celebrates the glory of his name. And then do you notice kind of the cycle of all of the, the you's? Or the you. You. you know, one of the things if you're going to read the Bible in its force is you have to learn where the emphasis should be placed and so just read through and to hear all the, you, O Lord, are the only God. You created, you gave life. You, the Lord, are the God who chose Abram. You found his heart faithful. You have fulfilled your promise. You are righteous. You saw the oppression. You performed the signs. You knew how arrogantly they acted. You made a name for yourself. You divided the sea. You hurled the pers per pursuers in it. You led them with a pillar of cloud. You came down on Mount Sinai. You gave them your ordinances. You revealed your Sabbath. You you provided, you brought, you told, you swore. See, all the used 21 times, that can't be a coincidence. It highlights this is what you have done. And then notice in 13 and 14, what does it highlight? You came down and you spoke. What makes this people so special is they have your word. You have spoken to them. You spoke to Moses like a friend, two friends speaking to one another, and you have spoken to us. You gave them these ordinances and instructions and statutes and commands, and then you revealed something. Look at 14. Isn't it interesting? They're talking about God coming down on Sinai and speaking to the people and giving the Ten Commandments, and they're celebrating that. And of the ten, the one that they want to bring to the fore and celebrate is that you uh, gave them, you revealed your holy Sabbath. The Sabbath is the thing that they ele elevate and celebrate. 
You have revealed, you have given, you have provided. Now you just move through 6 through 15 and it's this incredible celebration of who God is and what he's done. It's adoration, it's praise. And if we're going to warm our hearts, if we're going to get it heated up again, then the first thing, it has to begin in praise. All those yous, you have to pull yourself out of yourself and look out to who he is and what he's done. But then now notice in 16, we make the turn. Now this whole prayer is a prayer of confession, and we're finally now starting to get to the time of confession where we have honesty and owning who we are. It says, but our ancestors, they acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, you did not abandon them. Even after they had cast an image of a calf for themselves and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And they had committed terrible blasphemies. You did not abandon them. So a time of confession in 16 and 18. And notice kind of the progression of how sin worked in their life. That first word, they acted arrogantly. That's a difficult word to translate. You can look at different translations. It could be they acted arrogantly. They acted pridefully. They acted um, presumptuously. They acted entitled. You had done all of these things for them and give them this tremendous gift and grace and mercy. And they presumed on your, gra- on your gratitude and on your graciousness. They were arrogant. They were proud. They presumed. And then notice the, the progression. They did not listen. And then they did not remember. And then they became stiff-necked. And it's such an interesting image of the, the hard heart and stiff neck that you refuse to listen But at the very heart of the problem is this indifference to his word. They're not going to listen. And then they don't remember. And then they, the two two sins that they want to highlight is the sin, the Korah rebellion, where they try to usurp Moses' authority and establish themselves as authority to go back to Egypt. And then the other is the golden calf episode. And you know, it's interesting, you go through, they had a lot of, different, um, lot of different sins they could have picked, but they picked those two, and they highlight those, but he doesn't abandon them, that's the anthem, see in verse 17, verse 19, and what it's trying to do is trying to set up the, the mystery and the marvel, the majesty of what he's done for the people, uh, for them. And then notice in verse 19 through 23, it moves in this testimony of his compassion. You did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. During the day, the pillar of cloud never turned away from them. It guided them on their journey. And during the night, the pillar of fire illuminated the way that they should go. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. And you did not hold, withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness for 40 years, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and even their feet didn't swell. 
So this tremendous, powerful and practical care where even their feet didn't get blisters as they walked through the desert. And what he's trying to set up this painting is that what other people has had God to separate themselves for himself? And what other nation has he brought out of bondage with a mighty hand and outstretched arm? And what other people has he poured out his heavenly artillery in plagues on their enemies to set them free? And what other people did he split the sea so they could walk through? And what other nation did he give the gift of his word to lead them and instruct them and guide them? And what other nation did he open up the heavens and drop food down on them for them? And then what did they do? They wanted to turn. They wanted to, uh, they created idols. This is your God. But notice 17, he didn't abandon them. Verse 19, he didn't abandon them. He continued to guide them, even though he was providing light, providing guidance, providing sustenance. And you know, it's remarkable to think about in the two illustrations, like they were actually making the golden calf under the light that he was providing them. Or you think about the Korah, Korah, and when they experienced the Korah rebellion, they actually ate breakfast that morning with the manna that he gave them. I mean, can you believe the audacity? I mean, it's almost like he's the husband who has provided this house for his bride, and then she's having an affair while he's in the house. And that's what they're doing. And then notice what it says, he didn't abandon them. Verse 20, such a beautiful verse. You sent your good spirit to continue to instruct them. And you didn't withhold your manna. You didn't withhold water for their thirst. You know, he was providing water so they could speak, even though the words they spoke were grumbling and complaining against him. And you just wonder, like, when does God say enough? You know, I think about what I would do if I'm in that situation. My level of patience is so much lower. I mean, getting about eight or nine kids in the house and they're throwing Legos around and one hits me in the head and it's enough, all of you, out. And you just keep waiting. When is God going to do that? When is he going to say, enough, Moses, take down the tabernacle, roll up the curtains, put away the ark, no more sacrifices in the morning, no more sacrifices in the evening. Aaron, go home. That's enough. Put up the robes, put up the, the breastplate and the ephod that were designed to display your beauty and for my glory. Put it up. I have had enough. And it's remarkable. He doesn't do that. He continues, continued grace, compassion, because of your great compassion. And then notice in 22, we begin to turn. You gave them kingdoms and people and established boundaries for them. And they took possession of the land. They start to move. They start to turn their way. So this is in Deuteronomy where they take the two kingdoms of Heshbon and, and Bashan. And then you multiply their descendants in 23. And then in 24, it starts with this testimony of victory. Right? They've, they've risen. The Lord's picked them up and he's walked with them. So your descendants went in and they possessed the land and you subdued the Canaanites and you inhabited the land. And you handed them and handed their kings and the surrounding peoples over to them to do as they pleased. And they captured fortified cities and fertile lands and took possession of well-supplied houses and cisterns out of the rock and vineyards and olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. They ate, were filled, became prosperous, and they delighted in your great goodness. 
It's amazing. The Lord has acted and the people have responded in this testimony of victory. You know, the story should end here. Like if this was a Hollywood story, that's how it would end. You got this beautiful character arc where they've gone down into the depths and they struggled and they've been picked up and then they go in and now we have victory. We win. And it should end there, shouldn't it? But then look at verse 26. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and they killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemies. And then now what we're about to start is we're about to start this, uh, this sin cycle where um, they, they turn their back on the Lord, they fall down into the ditch, they cry out for help, he picks them up and reestablishes them, then they kind of start feeling good about themselves, turn their back upon him, fall down in the ditch, get back up, and we start this cycle. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. In their time of distress, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven. In your abundant compassion, you gave them deliverers. It's the word for judges. Now this is summarizing the whole book of Judges, that cycle. You gave them judges, deliverers. You gave them saviors. You know, that image, even the image of judge doesn't quite give the right connotation for us. I mean, we might think of somebody in like a long black robe with a gavel and maybe a white wig. That's not, the judge is, is the savior, the redeemer, the rescuer. You gave them judges to, to rescue them. Out of your abundant compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the power of their enemies. But as soon as they had relief, they again did evil, what was evil in your sight. So you abandoned them to the power of their enemies who dominated them, and then they cried out to you again, and you heard from heaven and rescued them many times in your compassion. You warned them to turn back to your law, but they acted arrogantly and would not obey your commandments. They sinned against your ordinances, which a person will live if he does them. They stubbornly resisted, stiffened their necks, and would not obey. But you were patient with them for many years, and your spirit warned them through your prophets but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and a compassionate God. So they enter into this cycle, and can you sympathize with that cycle of uh, pick them up, fall down, and what question, how can the cycle be broken? And then in 32, they cry out for help, but now, so now, our God, the great, mighty, awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant, do not view lightly all the hardships that have afflicted us, our kings and our leaders and our priests and our prophets, our ancestors and all your people from the days of the Assyrian kings until today. You are righteous concerning all that has happened to us because you have acted faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That could be the summary of the whole book. Faithful God, sinful people. How do, how do they coexist? How do they come together? How can he be their God and they be his people? Our kings and our leaders and our priests and our ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings that you gave them. When they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them and the spacious and fertile land that you set before them, they would not serve you or turn for your wicked ways. It's like they're painting the picture that you placed your people into paradise, but you, they would not listen. And so what happened? And here we are today, 
slaves in the land that you have given our ancestors. You gave it to them so that we can enjoy its fruit and its goodness. But here we are, we're slaves in it. And its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. So here's the culmination. We, we are slaves. How can this slavery be broken? Who will set us free? And then that's how it culminates in 38. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement. We are making a covenant in writing, sealed on this document, containing the names of our leaders. And then 10, it gives all the leaders of the households who come together and they say, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And they summon 1029. They say, we will obey all of his laws, all of his commandments, all of his ordinances, all is what he's asked us to do. See, they're looking back and they know, all right, our kings, our leaders, our priests, our ancestors, you set them in paradise, but they refused to obey. They would not listen. They wouldn't serve you. Now we're in slavery because of their sin, because of our sin, and we know the cycle. The only hope is that you send a deliverer to break the cycle. Who's going to come and break the curse for us? So what we need to do is we need to sign a new covenant. And their desire is the right one. They want to be done with sin. They want a fresh start. They want to be holy. They want to be obedient. They want to do the right thing. They're tired of being so beaten down. They want to obey the Lord with all of their heart. And so they say, we're, we're resolved. This is our New Year's resolution. And one of the things Dave will show us next week when we get to the end of the story, part of the sadness of the book of Nehemiah is what they come to learn is they're just like their ancestors. They're people too, a sinful people and a saving God that even though all of their good intentions to obey his commandments, they end up breaking them. And so where is the ultimate hope can be found? You know, in one sense, their ultimate hope could not rest in their own performance. It could not rest in their own obedience the only place they could place their hope is in the character of the one that they were serving. They have to know the reality of his name, that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, that he is a God that when you cry out to him, he redeems and he forgives. He is the forgiving one. That's how they can stand up and bless the Lord, even though they have dust and ashes on their heads. See, they are looking forward in hope to what we can look back in faith and see how God is going to help solve this problem that they're in. So he's going to raise up another deliverer, another savior. He's going to raise up the God-man, Jesus Christ, who alone can lead them to a place of rest who alone through his spirit is going to bring in a new covenant that's not going to be signed with their good intentions. It's going to be signed and sealed with his blood that's given for the forgiveness of their sins. And to ratify that new covenant, he's going to pour out his spirit on them. And so when they're united to him in forgiveness, they will be able to walk this path of new obedience. And so what we learn here in Nehemiah chapter 9 is that in many ways we're just like them. We're still exiles in an alien land, still distressed over the sin that mars our heart and our world, still longing for our true home. But this tells us that this, this prayer tells us that that's normal. 
And our faithful God will not abandon us. And he will provide all we need for the journey. And each week we celebrate communion. And the communion is our weekly reminder of this is uh, a, the symbolism of the manna. And, the, and the, the water that he's provided, the refreshment. He's provided uh, forgiveness for our sins. So let's pause and let's pray. And we're going to pray and thank the Lord for that. We're going to pray and thank the Lord for Nathan and Lucy. And then our communion servers are going to get in place. And then you come. But Lord, we thank you for the reminder that you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And the primary way, we can see your loving kindness in so many ways. We can see it in the beauty and the glory of creation. So give us eyes to see it. We can see it in the, um, the tremendous gift that friends are to us. So we thank you for your goodness as it's uh, been shown to us in the life of the joyful life of Nathan and Lucy and the way they've joyfully served the children at our church. And uh, we think of the tremendous gift of knowing them for this season. We thank you for the season that you've given them uh, to study well. We thank you for the calling that you've given them to expand your healing as far as the curse is found and to, to treat the way sin has broken our bodies. But we ask that you help them as they go into this new stage and new season uh, to take your love and your mercy with them. Calm any fears or anxieties they might have uh, as they go. But above all, we thank you for the tremendous gift that we see uh, in the death of your son that you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. So as we come to be reminded of that, we pray that you would renew and refresh our strength. Uh, know this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.